You're now listening to the Oregon Public Retirement Planning Podcast, where we teach you how to best understand the financial planning strategies unique to a public servant in Oregon. From learning about how the PERS and FPDR pensions work, to the investment and tax planning strategies that are within your 457 and IAP, we will show you how to take your planning to the next level. I'm your host, Daniel Ryan, licensed financial advisor and founder of Ryan Financial Solutions. And in today's podcast, we are diving deep into the meat and potatoes. If you didn't hear what we discussed in episode one, which is really the introduction to this podcast, a few things that I wanted to recap as we explore the benefits unique to an Oregon public servant, I wanted to come back and share a little bit more about who we serve as a firm. The first thing I'd like to mention is if you are, in fact, an Oregon public servant, you may know there are different classifications within that category. For example, you might still be working, which we would call an active PERS member or an FPDR member. And you might also be what's called an inactive member, which means maybe you did some years in public service, you took a leave of absence, or you've started to go into a different role in a private sector. And maybe you have the intense, you know, anticipation of coming back into public service, or maybe not. Maybe you've chosen to go a different path altogether. Certainly, there is the retired folks. So you're not active or inactive. You are, in fact, in the retired group of Oregon Public Service. I have a couple family members that fall under that category. And the last thing that we like to mention, too, is that we also serve your households, your families. You might have a family member that is not a public servant, or you might have a spouse that's not a public servant. I've had some folks confused about our specific area of expertise thinking, you know, but I have a spouse that has a 401k and so they don't have public service. So I was wondering if we can still meet with your firm because one of you is either a public servant or an inactive public servant or the family member. Of, an, of a public servant. And absolutely, that is exactly what we're here to do. What we want to make sure of is that we're helping those who are in public service at some point here in the state of Oregon. And that also includes those of you who came from other outside PERS or CalSTRS or TRS or other pensions in public service throughout the country. And you've come now into Oregon's public service. Our goal in having this niche is to let our clients know that this is in fact what we do every single day. So even though you have a spouse that's not a public servant, for example, absolutely, we are just as licensed and do as much if not more comprehensive planning in all of the areas of financial planning. But we also have on top of that a focus and expertise in public service here in the state of Oregon. The usual clientele that we have at Ryan Financial Solutions are usually households that have saved, you know, towards the end of their career. The complexities that you have as you navigate into retirement, or maybe you're already retired, those are the folks that usually have saved six figures, you know, over $100,000. But most of our clients are coming to us with over that half a million dollar mark. They've, they've saved as a household. Potentially, they have a spouse that has that 401k, and you add in your IAP and 457 and so forth. So there are typically clients that come to us with several hundred thousand dollars, and they are ready to take their planning to that next level. 
So we just like to clarify who we serve overall and really the process in how we serve our clients. So for example, you might be thinking, boy, I want to make sure that I'm getting the content, but how do I know how that would look if I was going to be a client at Ryan Financial? And we really try to make that process as wonderful and as seamless and as smooth for you as possible. The first thing that we like to do is invite you to actually schedule a free consultation with us directly. You can do that by going to OregonPublicRetirement.com or go to our firm's website, which is RyanFinancialSolutions.com. And there you'll be asked to fill out a very brief questionnaire so that we can get to know you and get to know some of the questions that you have specific to your appointment so that we can make sure we come prepared to answer those for you. Then in that first appointment, we're going to be working on those questions that you submitted ahead of time, as well as asking you some new questions so that you can make sure you're looking at all of the different aspects of your financial plan. If you do fit our expertise, that is what we're going to vet through that first appointment. We're not talking about what does it look like to be a client in that first appointment. We're really trying to add value to your situation right away. And if you do fit into our area of expertise, again, Oregon public servants or their households, then we want to make sure that you also get a second appointment completely free of charge. And again, we will establish that on our end if you do fit into our area of expertise. And we will present to you at that point in time exactly what we would do through actual bullet point action items so that you can see the agendas of the first five appointments that we would have with you. And then you get to establish after that appointment is this a firm that I would like to work with or do I feel like I can do these on my own? All after that, if you do decide to work with us, that is when the rubber meets the road and that is when we actually do the implementation of that planning. So there's a lot that can go into that and we want to make sure that we are walking you through before you do anything with any other financial planning firm. We want to give you an informed and educated process that we follow to make sure that everyone is getting fit into the proper financial plan as soon as possible. The last thing that we like to mention that we are different than most financial planning firms even outside the fact that we have such a very specific niche and expertise. And that is that we have a few different areas that we really function outside of your normal financial planning firm. The first thing is we hold a fiduciary standard. You know, a lot of folks have heard maybe that phrase before, but they're not quite sure what that means. And it is shocking to find out that most financial advisors are not legally obligated to act in your best interest. In fact, we're going to spend a podcast helping you vet financial advisors that you might be coming in contact with. And the first thing that we like to mention is that we never get paid commissions. We are compensated through actual fees paid by the clients that we walk through and they are based on the complexity of your situation. And we are very upfront with that. We like to make sure that our clients know we are sitting on the same side of the table. We don't get paid those commissions and we have no other obligations other than serving our clients directly. We are in fact a truly independent registered investment advisory firm or RIA. And that is what Ryan Financial Solutions has done to make sure that you are getting non-biased advice. The second thing that I like to plan out uh, is point out is that we are planning focused. 
meaning most financial advisors are going to spend their appointment talking to you about investment performance. Well, frankly, investments are the last piece of the pie, as you've heard in our introduction. And so we like to actually spend our time focusing on the planning itself. We need to make sure before we do investments, for example, we need to outline what is the best pension claiming strategy and social security claiming strategy and healthcare strategy, etc. So we are always coming back to planning as our main area of focus. The last two things I like to point out is that we are proactive, meaning we do two appointments a year with our clients, typically in February and August. February is perfect because that's when you just got all your tax forms and we are doing tax projections for that year. And looking back at the last year as well, February is also when a lot of folks get their tax forms. And so they probably have some questions before they file their taxes. Always better to see those questions before we need to do an amended return, for example. And we also like to make sure that in August we're touching base because that is when we have typically right before open enrollment. So healthcare is a big part of our planning as well as the rest of the other insurances that you have in your planning. And of course, we are in fact now fully virtual. We have moved away from this stuffy office atmosphere where you have to drive halfway across town just to meet with your planner. And now we've gone into the Zoom, phone calls, emails, DocuSign, etc., that is offering such a better client experience and allows us to help those clients that are farther away from us because we're based here out of the Portland area. Now, if you are in Medford, you can actually have a financial advisor that's an expert in your areas of financial planning that you need an expert to be in. So those are the things that I want to just recap in case you did not connect with us in that introduction episode. And from here on forward, we are going to be talking about the different pensions within Oregon PERS. So today's main topic is answering the question, which pension am I in? Now to really start with simplification, the first thing I want to say is we're going to be dealing with Oregon PERS. For example, if you are in the FPDR pension, or maybe you've come from out of state and you have multiple pensions, that's not what we're diving into for today. What we want to make sure is that as a foundation, we understand which PERS pension am I in. Now, for starters, I could make this as complicated as we could ever desire, but my goal here is to really break it down into maybe three different stages. And the first one is just give you strict code, answer the question based on higher date, and then we'll kind of deal with second stage, which is some of the foundational pieces that you need to have to make sure that this is going to be um, appropriate for your situation, which is things like vesting and qualifying positions and membership and wait time and things of that nature. And then the third stage is tackling some of the exceptions that might be appropriate for your situation. So again, stage one here, what I want to make sure everyone knows is that your pension classification is based on your higher date. Now I'm going to break this down just for a minute because it is based on higher date, not membership date. And again, we're going to break that down in stage two. So for example, if you were hired before January 1st of 1996, you're in tier one PERS. And 
And back in those days, there was nothing else. So this didn't seem like it needed to be a complicated question. You were just in PERS back then. It's really for the, the new folks in the last 25 years that have had different pensions to even choose from. So again, if you were hired before January 1st of 1996, you're in tier one. If you were hired somewhere between January 1st of 1996 and August 28th of 2003, you're in tier two. And if you were hired anytime after that, you are in OPSERP, which is also called the Oregon Public Service Retirement Plan. Some people call it tier three, but those are the three pensions that exist within PERS. Now, a lot of folks ask me this very simple question. Well, am I in multiple pension classifications? And the answer is 100% of the time, no. You cannot be hired for the first time more than once. So for a lot of folks, I know that it can be confusing. They think they are in tier one and tier two because it you know, probably says that on your pay stub or something of that nature. But what we want to understand is that you fall into one of three pension classifications. So that is stage one. We have to understand that there are three classifications. Really all that means is how is my pension calculated, which we're going to dive deeper into our next podcast episode. But at the end of today, I want everyone to know for sure which pension am I in within Oregon PERS. Now, stage two is to understand, not only do you not have two pensions within Oregon PERS, but we need to understand what a pension is, because I'm going to keep using that word. And for some of you, you might know this already, but I get this question a lot. Does PERS last my whole life? The answer is, it depends. If, for example, you choose as we'll discuss the different claiming strategies, if you choose a total lump sum benefit as a tier one or tier two member, then the answer is no. You're essentially cashing out the pension, moving it to an IRA, and then it's really based on you to make that last as long as you can. But for most people, you choose option one or option two, which do in fact pay you a stream of income typically based on your years of service and your final average salary and so forth. So that is what a pension is, is a lifetime stream of income. So that's what I'm talking about when I say tier one, tier two, or OPSERP. We're talking about the stream of income in retirement that lasts for the rest of your life. Now, while you can only have one pension, Everyone who has worked after the year 2004, you do also have the individual account program, which simply is a lump sum benefit that cannot be pensionized, actually, meaning it will run out. So it's what's called a defined contribution plan, and it's a lot like your 401k or 403b or 457 type of plan you are essentially forced, or you or your employer, um, whoever's deciding to do a PERS pickup, for example, which we'll, we'll talk about in the future. In most circumstances, though, it's coming out of your paycheck and you're funding this 
IAP. So you do have a second piece of your pension, if you will, but it is a lump sum. The other one that I refer to is a stream of income for the rest of your life. Now, as we start to break that down, we're going to head into stage two. And stage two is talking about vesting, qualified PERS uh, positions, and making sure that you get qualified service credit while you're in that vesting and membership period. Okay, so what do I mean by that? Well, as I mentioned before, you can only be hired for the first time once in a PERS position. And so what I mean by that is PERS employers, you know, I'm going to use a school district as an example. If you got hired at ABC school district in 1992, and then you decided to switch school districts in 1997, okay, you got hired in a PERS qualifying position as a tier one member, you switching PERS employers does not change your status as a PERS employee. Another way to say that is all the PERS employers coordinate, or at least they're supposed to, in making sure that they record your work history within the pension. So it doesn't actually matter if you took some time and worked at several different PERS employers throughout the entire state. But what we want to make sure of is when you first got hired, was that a qualified PERS position? And for a lot of folks, the difference is usually you were in a temporary position. That would not be a qualified position. So a lot of the times I work with teachers, and so they might have started out as a substitute teacher, and they were only working a few hours here and there while they were also going to school or something like that. And so we want to better understand when you first got hired, did your employer say that this is a qualifying position for Oregon PERS? That is the first part of this stage two. Was it a qualified position? Then we ask the question, how many hours were you working in each of those years? For example, I like to use a substitute teacher because it's probably one of the most complex uh, ways to calculate your service. And I see a lot of mistakes. Essentially, if you were working a school year, but you only worked three months in the first, you know, January to March, and then at spring break, you, uh, you didn't get a job anymore for that rest of the year, you might have hit 600 hours of work during that time period, which is the minimum amount to receive service credit. However, if you only worked those 600 hours and you basically only got to three months of work, you did not get a full year of service. You got three months. So it is critical that we better understand if you had instead spread out those 600 hours across all 12 months, you would have received, potentially, if it's a qualifying position, you would have received a full year of service credit. Now, where I see the issue here is especially substitute teachers because you're working a lot of the times in different school districts. And so they are not actually all working together to coordinate and, and make sure that you're getting paid correctly and also recording the correct information with the pension. Met with a, a client that had 25 years of service, but only had 12 years recorded into PERS. Youch. 
So we need to make sure that we are being an advocate for you and that you know this information so that you can go and be an advocate for yourself as well. Now, that being said, the last piece of stage two is what about vesting? Okay, so again, original hire date and all that good stuff, qualifying position, certain number of hours to get credit. Vesting, like wearing a vest <laughs> over, over your jacket, is the concept of basically doing five years of work before anyone promises to pay you this pension for the rest of your life. So basically what that means is if you worked for five years and you were a PERS member in a qualifying position and you worked 600 hours per year to get into five calendar years, then pensions, uh, PERS pension will basically pay you a stream of income at a certain point in time, which we will talk about in the future. But let's say you only did four years and then you decided, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to go teach in Vancouver, Washington, or I'm going to go work in California or whatever, or I'm going to just switch to the private sector. And then I'll, maybe I'll come back later. If you did not vest, which is again, is five years, five calendar years that you needed to be 600 hours or more, then you essentially gave up all those contributions into the pension and you're not going to get any benefit from a pension standpoint. Now, your IAP was always your money, so, so you know I suppose you could actually cash that out, but we'll talk about some dangers with that. But really what we want to best understand from this is the fact that if you didn't do five years of work, and there's actually a little bit of a gap for wait time here, which I'll talk about next, but if you didn't do five years of work and then you left the pension, then when you show up to retirement, you're going to be sadly surprised. <laughs> And the other reason this matters is if you decided to take a leave of absence, you know, sometimes teachers will have, uh, or, or anybody in this case, they will take a few years and start their career and then they'll take a break to be with family or whatever it is, and then they'll come back later. If you did not hit your five years and then you took more than a five-year break before coming back, you have to start over. So that matters a really big deal if you, for example, started in tier two and then you didn't vest all five years of work, so you then left and now you gave more than five years until you came back. So they basically wrote you off and said, okay, they're not coming back. But then you did. Now you are in the OPSERP pension, which is why I like to start with stage one because it is based on your hire date and you can't be hired for the first time more than once, but for some people, you actually do get hired for the first time more than once <laughs> if you think about it from a PERS perspective. So it's important for us to understand vesting because it really could shoot you, you know, in the foot if you don't understand how the rules work and if you knew that all you had to do was make it one more year and then you can take as much time off as you want. You can come back 30 years later and work for PERS and you get to start right off the bat again. No, won't have to restart your wait time or anything. So that brings us to wait time. We're still in stage two here. Wait time is essentially when you get hired, you have six to eight months that you nor your employer are paying into the PERS system. So they're basically kind of testing the waters here uh, before you actually start paying into the system. And so for most folks, I'm going to talk to tier one and tier two here for a second. 
for most folks, you had six to eight months and then you worked for 30 years. And so when you show up to the retirement application, you want to have a written estimate that shows you all the different purchases you can make for your pension. One of them will likely be your wait time, which was that first, you know, 30 years ago, that first six to eight months that you didn't pay into the pension, nor did your employer. And Per says, if you want to add that service credit back into your calculation, here's how much it would cost. And it could be anywhere from a few hundred dollars to several thousand dollars, depending on your situation, which is why we look at that and see, ah, does this really make sense for you? So that is really what wait time is. And again, it's critical because when we're talking about vesting, a lot of school teachers, they don't pay into that first calendar year because they then got hired as a member in March of that school year. So they're in a different calendar year. So yes, it can get complicated. You might think you're in the right pension and we look at your situation and find out, did you take some time off and then come back and go, yeah, how does that? And then we start to put these pieces together. And while all the concepts seem, you know, kind of simple, maybe these were 30 years ago for a lot of folks. And so they are trying to figure out, well, was that time at my community college a qualified position? Well, I kind of started part-time and then it became full-time. Really, once we start looking down your service credit history, it's important for us to actually reach out to those employers and send typically a data verification letter, but be, you know, be careful when you do that because you can only send those a couple times and they can permanently hurt you, which a lot of folks don't know that. If we find wrong information, uh, you cannot go back and change it once you've done a data verification. So be careful using those, but that is typically how we would solve the confusion from the employer's reporting from, you know, however long ago. <laughs> so really what I want to make sure of is the last piece here, which are some of these exceptions. Okay, well, we talked about, hey, it's really just based on your hire date. Then we talked about qualifying positions and service credit for 600 hours of qualifying uh, time each calendar year and then vesting and switching, you know, school districts or employers and the difference between a lump sum benefit and a pension benefit. The last piece of this is really just discussing some of the exceptions that fall into this category of, well, which pension am I in? So if you do want to look at your PERS statement that you reserve, that you receive each May, it will tell you on the top left, your hire date, which is again, probably going to be what uh, is determining your pension. And then towards the middle top of the page, they will tell you the membership date, which shows you the difference of the wait time that I just discussed. Then as we look into the center of your page, you're going to find that tier one, tier two, or OPSERP classification of your pension. But what some folks don't know is that if you ever took some time and cashed out your pension, essentially, then you will basically be on the hook for refunding that amount of time and pay a certain dollar amount to make sure that you can actually go back and change which pension you're in for classifications and calculations in that standpoint. So this is called refunded time or forfeited time. And it essentially comes down to back in the day, maybe it's through a divorce, which is usually what I see it happen through. Uh, you might have moved and so you cashed out the pension altogether and then you actually came back into per service and so you thought to yourself, okay, well, I have to start over and there's no way to change that. Well, in reality, 
it is possible for us to go back. If you came in back in tier one or back in tier two, we can go back and refund those years. But there's two different types of purchases here, depending on your situation, that we will dive deeper into a future episode. But essentially, there is one called refunded time and one called forfeited time, and they need to be paid for at different times. <laughs> and so you have refunded time that has to be paid uh, basically within that first year or so that you are hired back into per service and forfeited time, which has to be made as a purchase at retirement, technically 90 days before you retire. And so those are going to be handled a little bit differently and could move you from tier one back into tier two, potentially. There's also other purchases like for temporary work that could move you back from tier one two into tier one. So it is important for us to know that there are some exceptions here. And this is where I see those folks that say, well, I got hired on, but as a temporary position, maybe it wasn't a qualified position, or maybe I had to cash out my pension, but then I came back to work. And so I know that at the stage one, it could be simple. But in that last stage, uh, I find that as we dive deeper into your actual service credit and history, we like to look at your online member services and to see, hey, does this look correct that you worked in this school district and then moved to this one and then you changed into this, but there's a big gap here. Uh, we want to make sure that, that has been recorded properly. And we like to ask those questions like, hey, is there any other PERS service that's not being recorded on your online member services right now? Because that will guide us to different questions overall. So this hopefully answers all those questions that you've ever had about which pension am I in. And even though you might have thought, hey, this is a simple thing for us to, to learn, it really does get complex quickly. So this is something that we want to make sure everyone has the opportunity to ask questions. Make sure you check your PERS statement. Make sure you go on your online member services and actually navigate to the hyperlink that says member in the center of your screen. And then on the left-hand side, it will show you job history and you get to then check to make sure that you were recording this all properly throughout your career because you don't want to find out 30 years later that you should have asked more questions or what have you. And so sometimes we get the opportunity to go back and change that, like I mentioned, depending on your situation. Uh, but other times it, uh, it can really be detrimental if you don't have any proof that you worked X number of hours. So it can get complicated quickly, but essentially as a brief recap, you can only be in one pension. You are either in tier one, tier two, or OPSERP. And that is a critical foundation for us to have the discussion in our second uh, upcoming episode here about how your pension is calculated. So until next time, we are going to be focused on taking your planning to the next level. Before you go, just a quick note from our attorneys. Different types of investments involve a varying degree of risks, and there are no assurances that any specific investment or strategy will be suitable or profitable for a client portfolio. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. Estate planning and tax information provided is general in nature, so always consult an attorney or tax professional regarding the specific legal or tax situation. Information presented is believed to be factual and up-to-date, but we do not guarantee its accuracy and it should not be regarded as complete analysis of the subjects discussed.
All expressions of opinion reflect the judgment of the author and presenter as of the date of publication and are subject to change and do not constitute as personalized investment advice. A professional advisor should be consulted before implementing any investment strategy. An advisor does not represent, warranty, or imply that the services or methods of analysis employed by the firm can or will predict the future results, successfully identify market tops and bottoms, or insulate clients from losses due to market corrections or declines. Investments are subject to market risks and potential of loss of principal invested. All investment strategies, likewise, have the potential for profit or loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Different types of investments involve a varying degree of risk and therefore cannot have an assurance that there any investment will be either suitable or profitable for a client portfolio. There are no assurances that any portfolio will match or outperform any particular benchmark.